Ladies and gentlemen, the questions you've all been asking are now being answered. Welcome to another edition of It's All About Who You Know, the podcast where influential people talk big topics in sports, faith, and more. Your host is a former Oregon State wrestler. He has a 4.9 star Uber rating and is currently undefeated in his MMA career. Here is Christian Robertson. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of It's All About Who You Know. Before we get into my podcast with Gary, just a few little housekeeping things. I'm 97.3% sure not all of you subscribed to my YouTube channel. So get over there, Christian Robertson on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button. Watch a couple videos. There's a couple clips. If you don't want to listen to the whole podcast, I'll have some of the more entertaining clips from the podcast on there. Deep breath. And uh, so go check those out if you haven't yet. Um, Hit subscribe, like some videos, comment, comment, comment. That feeds the YouTube algorithm, guys. So do that. Uh, If you like this podcast, if it brings some value to your life, maybe you thought it was interesting. Maybe it doesn't even bring value to your life, but you know it might bring value to somebody else's. Share it. And if it doesn't bring value to anybody else's, share it anyway, because, you know, this is, uh, this is how I make my living. That's why I'm doing this podcast from a basement in Brazil right now. Anyway, um, also, if you have not yet, go over to Apple or Spotify. Leave a five-star review. That really helps me out. Uh, let me know what you think of the podcast, and especially this one. So our guest today is a guy by the name of Gary Gilbert. So Gary is a retired uh, prison guard. He's retired Navy and Navy enlist and, um, just an all around great dude, man. One of my, uh, he was in my Bible study, him and his wife, great couple, great people. And, um, we just got to talking and really hit it off in in Bible study. And I started to learn some things about him. He was Charles Manson's prison guard at one point. So, you know, retired from, if I'm breathing heavy guys, I'm sorry. Uh, I gotta say, give me a second. I had some cheese earlier. So if I'm breathing heavy, if I sound like I'm mouth breathing, it's cause I am, but super cool dude back to it. Super cool dude. Uh, really great friend of mine now. Um, yeah, just a really good dude. And, uh, it's got a lot of interesting stories. Black Republican kind of talks about how, why he doesn't like BLM here in the podcast. It's a little, little, uh, little controversial for some people. If you're listening, don't tune it out just because I said that. I said he doesn't support BLM. I didn't say I didn't support BLM just then. Anyway, uh, yeah. So if you guys uh, like the podcast, if it adds some value to your life, go ahead and share it. Gary's a great dude. You're going to hear some of his story. Great story. Fun interaction. So, Put your seatbelts on, sit back, get the popcorn ready, and uh, enjoy. How's it going? Going good. How you doing? I'm doing really good, man. It's been a good day. Real productive day. Busy. Been, uh, been waking up at 6 every morning and reading my Bible and getting things started off right. So I did that, and then I studied quite a bit for my uh, EMT course. So it's been, it's been a busy day. Oh, good. Good. What about you? How's your day been? Uh, okay. You know, I think I'm trying to come down with a little cold, but 
been pretty mild so far, so that's good. You got the Omicron or, or the Unicron or whatever they're calling it? I don't know. What it's called. <laughs> you know, I'm not really sure. You know, I just woke up and this morning, you know, my head a little tingled in my throat and uh, kind of a, a really small sinus headache kind of feels like. But other than that, that's it. Well, uh, try not to pass it on to me through the microphone, okay? <laughs> so, you know, we'll, we'll see if I have the cron or not, you know. I, everybody, <laughs> I, I've heard about it from, uh, from word of mouth. I haven't been on the news or anything in the last few months. I've just, I've tuned it all out. Even, cause, even the guys I follow, it's very, um, it's, just, it's just so angry all the time. You know, I don't want to be. And I think I said even in our our, rooted, our Bible study group that I was more upset that people didn't vote for Trump than that they didn't know Jesus. And that was like an issue for me. And so <laughs> I was like, I just got to tune everybody out that, you know, because most of the news is just commentating on the other news outlets that don't agree with you. And that's probably an issue. Right. Yeah. Our youngest son, Cameron, just called me about 20 minutes ago. He went and got tested on... I think Tuesday, and he just called me and said, yeah, dad, you know, my, my test results came back positive, you know, so I have Corona, but, you know, he's had, you know, a little bit of cough, no fever, um, felt a little tired, and that's, you know, and that was about it, you know, so he says, go, hey, if, if this is what the Corona is like, he goes, hey, I can, I can deal with this, no problem, so, and I haven't seen him, haven't been around him in about 10 days. So, but, you know, if it is, I mean, I got a mild case too, but I will know. I'll talk to my doctor later today and see what he says. Right. Yeah. It's just so weird. I feel like our culture's changed around it too. And there's so much misinformation out there. And um, I, yeah, I just, it's like, if you got it, you got it and get what you need. But if not, uh, you know, do what you got to do but exactly how was your guys new year's and your christmas good yeah you know we uh just stayed you know of course we stayed here and cameron came over and uh new year's eve Lindsay had a bet with me that i wouldn't stay awake which i usually don't because i'm usually <laughs> asleep about 9 30 or 10 o'clock yeah so she bet and she goes you're not gonna stay up dad and i go no you know it's our first year in vegas and so i'm gonna give it my best to stay up and she came out of her room about 12.30 and she goes, oh, I'm shocked you're still awake. I go, I told you, you know, that I'd stay up. But I mean, it sounded like Iraq and Afghanistan here in the neighborhood, you know, from everybody firing off their fireworks. A little crazy, but you know, after about 12.45, it finally quieted down. Yeah, no, I was, uh, I live a little, little further off the strip than you guys do, I think. But um, yeah, I was, I was out by like nine o'clock. I went home. I w my plan was, cause I was Ubering and my plan was to work through the night. And, um, and I was like, okay, but I've been up since four, it's eight 30. I need to go take a shower. I get home, I take a shower and I'm like, nope, I'm going to bed. <laughs> so I just, <laughs> I went straight to sleep. I was the most boring 24 year old in Vegas that night. <laughs> And, you know, you're not that much boring. I mean, Cameron's 29 and he stayed home too. He said all his friends were working, you know, or they were just going to stay at home. So he just stayed at home too. And he fell asleep. He lives about two and a half miles from us. 
And I sent him a message about about 11.45. I go, hey, you're awake? He goes, yeah, I can't help it. You know, all the fireworks were gone off by his house, too. So, Oh, geez. Yeah. You want to hear a funny story? Uh-huh. So, so we went up to uh, we went up to Park City for have you ever been up to Park City? No. Okay. So we went to Park City, Utah for Christmas. And every year we do a um, we do like a, a secret Santa. And so so I have two younger brothers. I've got an 18 year old, he turns 19 in a couple of weeks, and then I've got a 17 year old, he just turned 17. And um, so we all do a secret Santa, my parents and everybody. And I drew, I drew my dad, but not part of the story. And then my brother drew me. So normally the way it works is we set a limit, but the limit ends up being the minimum. So this year it was, I mean, there's been years we've done a hundred dollars and then, you know, somebody will get a $200 gift or whatever. Never under the, the minimum or the limit. And, you know, that's just how it works with tax or whatever, or somebody, you know, goes a little overzealous. So, so everybody's getting, so the, this year it was 50 and my youngest brother got me and, and so everybody, you know, is getting their gifts. You know, I got my dad like a $70 shirt or something like that. I think my mom got like a $80 jacket. Um, like these are nice gifts. Not that mine wasn't, but my brother gets me like this little magnetic dartboard and I open it and I'm like, Oh, that's awesome. Like, thanks man. Like I'll put this up in my room and I'll just throw, you know, just, just have some fun. And, um, and as the gift going, gift giving is going on, I, I lean over, I'm like, Hey, Cole, how much did you, how much did you spend on this gift? And he's kind of looking over here and he goes 13 and then looks back. (laughs) And I like, look at the gift and it says $16. And I'm like, it says 16. He's like, yeah, but it was on sale. (laughs) So I tell the whole family, I'm like, Hey, Cole's gift was like a third of what the so he was like well you were with me when i was shopping so i didn't want to get uh i didn't i couldn't get more i was like cool you're missing two-thirds of my gift and my mom i think peter pants she was laughing so hard but i was just like wow i hope i i hope you never draw me again you're the worst well hey he could have got you that he went and got you a 60 dollar crumble cookie gift card and you would have been solid yeah i i was looking on crumble cookie today and i was just like man i really wish I had some money on this account. Otherwise, I would definitely, I love, are you a crumble cookie guy? You know, they're a little too sweet for me. You know, I I can get, um, I tried their chocolate chip. I like I, that. I brought them to and, Bible and study that one night. Right. Yeah, I didn't eat any of them because, you know, they're, they're it's too sweet. Uh, Cameron's a, a crumble cookie junkie. So that's when we got him a gift card for crumble cookie. And he was so happy. Oh, I'm sure. One of my one of my friends at the gym. He's uh, he's in the UFC now, but he um, he has a lifetime supply of crumble cookie. Like he got sponsored by them, and instead of money, they gave him uh, unlimited crumble cookie for life. <laughs> and I was just like, keep moving, man. I was like, man, I need to get crumble cookie as a sponsor for me when I start when there I you go go up in the rankings. There you go. No, but, uh, well, that's good, man. I'm glad the holidays were well. So, okay, so let's um, give me a little bit of your background because I know, I think I found out the last week of Rooted, you were in, you were in the Navy, correct? Or was yes. it? Okay. And now, did you enlist or did you go in as an officer? Uh, no, I went as enlisted right out of high school. I, I graduated high school in May. Uh, 
moved in with a buddy of mine that I went to church with. And three months later, you know, I just I always knew I was going to go in the Navy. So I went, I set up with my recruiter to go down and take the test. I went down, took the test. And after I passed it, he goes, hey, if you want to go, there's one more seat left on the plane going to San Diego. You know, you can go today. I said, well, I didn't bring anything with me. He goes, well, you don't really need anything. Mm. So I said, okay. So I went in, did my physical, took my oath of office, and called my mother and said, hey, meet me at the airport and bring my wallet. And that was it. I did everything in one day. And then wow. off to uh, San Diego, I went to, to uh, basic training. Uh, after boot camp, I uh, went to San Francisco. When you're going out to the fleet, they send everyone to firefighting school. So they sent us over to Treasure Island for about five weeks to learn how to fight fires aboard a ship. Oh, wow. So I went there and got my orders to go to Yokosuka, Japan, to be on the USS Midway, the ones that's the museum in San Diego. Yeah, yeah. So went to the Midway and stayed there for a year and a half, and then came back stateside, tried to re-enlist, but they wanted to send me back overseas. And I told them, I don't want to go back overseas. You know, I was just overseas. And they said, well, where do you want to go? I go, well, I want to go to Florida. I'm like, well, why do you want to go to Florida? I don't know. I've never been to Florida. So I just want to be stationed in Florida. But they never would give me that assignment. So I got out. And then how long, how long of a period of time were you in the military? Four years. Oh, you, okay. So you did four years. And right. then uh, what was your occupation during that time? Hospital corpsman. Same thing as a Navy, as a paramedic. Okay. Same thing. So did you, so did you get your paramedics license? Is that how that worked? No, you, you go to school and I went to school in San Diego. They call it Navy Corps school. Okay. So I went to a uh, Navy Corps school in San Diego and you go there, they teach you, you know, emergency, emergency trauma, that kind of stuff, how to suture, kind of all the basic stuff right. that you need to know. And then after that, I was stationed at Oakland Naval Hospital. And that's where you really get your training at, you know. So I worked in pediatrics uh, for about seven or eight months. I worked in labor and delivery for about eight months, which was really interesting because I'd never been around babies being born. Before. Right. <laughs> um, they, they put me in the ER for a while. So, you know, you get to bounce around a little bit, you know, and learn a lot of different things. And once I got out of the military, then one of my first jobs after I got out was working at a hospital in San Marcos, not in San Marcos, in Sacramento, mm -hmm. uh, you know, picking up patients out of the ER, assisting with, you know, emergencies that were coming in. Even though they knew that I was a Navy corpsman, they only, because of liability, they only allowed me to do certain things. But when I was in the military, before I even went to school, um, when I was on the Midway, I worked in a medical department and we had really good surgeons that would let us, if you were training, actually go into OR with them and kind of watch what they do. And I had a really cool commander that was a surgeon, and he taught me how to close up after he was done with surgery for certain things. So, yeah, I learned a lot. It was a lot of fun. So what, what, um, what led you to going in the military? And are you a Christian at this point in time? 
in your life? Uh, yeah, because I came across when I was 12 years old mm -hmm. uh, at one of the old-fashioned Texas uh, tent revivals. Oh, yeah. You know, is, is when I came to Christ. But I had I wanted to go to college because I was a singer, too. Okay. So, and I was in, in junior high choir, high school choir, and uh, participated in a lot of state competitions. And the last competition I went to in high school as a state competition, and the guy that was one of the judges offered me a full ride scholarship to one of the colleges uh, to major in music, but my my parents wouldn't go and meet with him, you know, to go over everything. So, and after that kind of, you know, went uh, sideways, then I thought, you know what, I want to get out of here. You know, I, I always wanted to travel. Didn't want to go in the Air Force because they don't really go anywhere. Definitely didn't want to go to Marines because I heard their basic training was way too rigid, way too hard. So <laughs> chose the Navy. Gotcha. Okay, so that was just kind of something that was on your heart for a while and you just wanted to do it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Never um, regretted it. Now, now, how long were you – now, you were a prison guard. How right. long – did you tell me, was this you, did you say that you actually, um, you were around Charles Manson? Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I first got into corrections, after I, I got, I left that hospital I was working at, uh, a brother-in-law said, hey, you know, Department of Corrections is hard and you should, to, should apply, you know, they pay well. So I applied, did think I'd actually get the job, but I did. So I, I started off at Dual Vocational Institute in Tracy, and they called it Gladiator School. And I didn't understand what that meant until after I got there. Then I found out really quick what Gladiator School was. And it just means that there was always fights, always riots, always shootings, always stabbings. There was always that kind of stuff that was going on. So I, I started off there as a, they call you a permanent intermittent employee at that time. And it just means they call you when they need you to come to work. So, but they needed a lot of people. So I worked on a regular basis. So I left there and went to, because I, I got to a point, I wasn't working too many, too many hours. So they offered me a position at Soledad State Prison. So I transferred there, me and a buddy of mine and worked at Soledad for about nine months and during that time, it was still, it was the early, it was the mid eighties during that mm -hmm. time. And there was still a lot of prison gang violence that was going on. So there was always stabbings and shootings. Uh, I was involved in three riots at Soledad. Wow. You know, where you, the alarm goes off, you run into a build, you run into the building um, all the staff is running to the building. The medical personnel are running to the building. And they pop open the doors and we walk in there. And there's, uh, in this particular building, there's four tiers. And on every tier where the inmates live at and on the main floor where they can sit around at tables and play cards on both sides of the buildings. Because when you run in a building, there's something called a sally port and it separates one side of a building to another one. So there's an A side and a B side. So as soon as we, we run through the, the security door, they close the door behind you and you're in a sally port 
and there's two wings and both wings are in complete chaos. You know, you're looking through the bars and you see inmates being thrown from the top floor to the bottom floor. Guys are beating each other, stabbing each other. There's blood everywhere. The officers that are working in the gun towers inside of the building, you know, they're firing off tear, gra tear gas at first to try and get them to stop. That doesn't stop. Then they, you know, they tell us to wait in there and they start firing off rounds, you know, for some of the, against some of the inmates that are stabbing other inmates. And once they're done shooting, you know, they just tell us, hey, you know, um, you know, it's clear. So they pop the gates and there's probably about 40 of us in the Sally Port. They open both sides and we rush in and there's still guys fighting, you know, and I mean, it's, it's just, it's chaos total chaos until you can you can get it under control um and in the three ones that three riots that i was in there's uh different parts of the facility they go and they put officers on buses and bring them over there and it's it is it's just it's crazy craziest thing you ever seen that's not so i mean when they depict it in the movies where you, you said those tears and everybody's just going at it is it it's really like that huh yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really like that. So it's what, really like that. What made you want to get into this? Like, why? Because when money. I think of like money, <laughs> okay, it, paid, it did. It paid. It paid really well. Really, really well. They you know, during during that time, yeah, it paid they, really well. Do they pay better than like police and military? Oh, much more than the military. And we were on par with the California Highway Patrol. Which is, uh, which, at the time, know, probably was, like 80, 90 a year? Uh, back then, when I started, it, it wasn't as much. You know, you were making um, probably, eh, I'd say, four grand a month. Okay. In the, in the mid-80s. Mm. And we were usually, we usually made about $200 less than the Highway Patrol. And then they determined that we needed parity during our negotiations, meaning we need to be paid on the same level as the CHP. That's oh. what they based it on. I was thinking of a different parity, <laughs> like like comedic parity. Right. I was like, I don't understand. So then they they raised our level to be on par with the with the highway patrol. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And then. So what, okay, timeline-wise, when, when did you get into, when did you get into being a prison guard? Was this right after, are you married at this point when you started? Yeah, Sin and I, we had been married uh, less than a year when I got in, got involved in it. Um, went to the academy, guys, I said, you know, went to, went to Tracy, left there, went to Soledad, uh, worked there for about eight or nine months. Uh, during this time, and Soledad was four hours away from where we lived. So I had to, they had what they call officer's quarters on the prison grounds. Mm -hmm. So I stayed there five days a week and then I drove home on my off days. What? So I did that for about, about eight months. And while I was away, uh, Cindy got uh, not really attacked, but she got chased home where we lived in Sacramento, right across the street, you know, it's places, you know, you can go over to Jack in a Box and there's little coffee shops. So she went over and get something to eat. 
And on the way back, she had these four guys or five guys in a pickup truck that saw her walking and, and started uh, yelling racial slurs at her and chased her and she ran across the street. The guys jumped out of the, the guys in the back of the truck jumped out. And as she was running, we had a security gate. She was able to get the gate open and close it um, before they could get to her, you know, and, you know, they were, you know, yelling the usual, you know, we're going to kill you, nigga, that kind of stuff. So, mm. and just so happens, the, um, the manager of our, of the apartment complex, she heard what was going on and came out and Sigma was freaking out. So she called, she, she called the job and told my supervisor what was going on. He called me down to the office and I went down there. He said, hey, just go home. Uh, I'm giving you five days off, you know, make sure your wife is okay. So I came home, she was, you know, still obviously upset. Stayed home, went back and told my supervisor, said, hey, because of what happened to my wife, I can't continue to do this. I gotta be closer to home. So I was going to resign. He goes, well, hey, you know, don't quit. Um, let me see if I can get you assigned to a prison that's closer to home. And his buddy was the warden of Soledad Prison. So he sent me to talk to him. And I went over and I sat down and he goes, yeah, I heard what happened to you. He goes, look, um, I already talked to one of my buddies that runs the, the prison at St. Quentin. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm going to get you transferred there. He goes, but take these forms I'm giving you. Uh, you need 10 signatures minus the last one. Every place you go, they're going to tell you no because you haven't been here long enough, but only my signature is the one that matters. So I went around to all these people. They all told me no. I came back. I looked all dejected. And he laughed. He goes, they all told you no, right? I go, yeah. He goes, like I said, only my signature. Mine is the only one that matters. So he signed it, and I left that day. And went to and got assigned to San Quentin. Wow. Is now San Quentin, they're kind of, are they, is that the worst prison in the United States? I guess I'll just put it bluntly. I, I'd say it's in the top five. Because it's definitely the one that people think of when they think of worst prison. Like that's kind of the, it's synonymous, you know? Right. Yeah, San Quentin uh, was, you know, was a dangerous it's extremely dangerous prison. Uh, a lot of the, the heavy hitters, the big shot callers for the gangs, mm. a lot of them were in San Quentin. Uh, they were in ADSEG, administrative segregation, where they put all the gang members that have gotten into stabbings at other prisons. They would ship them to San Quentin. Wow. So for, at that time, Folsom and San Quentin were the end of the line, but uh, Folsom was the worst. St. Quentin was right above it, being the second worst. So when I got to St. Quentin, you know, all this time, I mean, I'm like 22 years old, 21, 22 years wow, old. That's crazy. Um, and getting at it, just going into St. Quentin, I mean, would really, it would, it scared the crap out of you when you first go there. Because it looks just like it does on television. You got those big burly gates. And once you walk through the gates and they slam that gate behind you, 
yeah, it'll send chills down your back. So I was a little freaked out when I first got there, but you know, you're not supposed to show that you're scared. Right. So I, my first assignment was in administrative segregation in the, in the heavy gang unit. And that's the first place that I went to. And I went in and my new supervisor gave me, he gave me my side Hannibal time, gave me my handcuffs and said, there's your tear. Go work it. You know how to work a tear, right? I go, yeah. He said, there you go. Go work it. You know, so he gave me, he gave me the tear. And I found out later on, he gave me the tear that the other officers didn't want to work. Oh, but they no. always put the new guys on. And I mean, you had, there was a NF, Nuestra Familia, uh, the gang of Hispanics from Northern California. We had them, we had La Eme, the Southern Mexican gang from Southern California. We had some of those guys on there. I had BGF, Black Gorilla Family, uh, kind of like a, a really, really worse version of the Black, Black Panthers. And I had, um, you know, then I had the, you know, the, the skinhead group, you know, that was there. Wow. And you had two officers that worked a gun rail and they watched everything that you do. You know, from the time you hit the floor, you hit the tier, you open the gate, you walk the floor, you do your security checks, uh, you take them out for showers, you feed them their food. When it's time for them to go to the exercise yard, you handcuff them, you move them out of the unit. So it's, it's a crazy place. You know, worked there for a while, and then I worked in the cafeteria, supervising inmates that were cooking the food which always makes you nervous because they got knives and all <laughs> and everything else that you can think of. Worked there for a while and then spent some time on death row, working death row. Wow. <clears throat> now, is, every, is everybody in San Quentin, are they not all in there for life, are they? Or is that how that works? Once you get there, you're... No, no, not all of them are there for life. Um, you got, you have a lifer's unit. I've worked in a lifer's unit also, mm -hmm. you know, that, uh, those guys, they're never going home, never going to see daylight. Do they even get visits? Uh, they, they can, you know, it depends on what points that they have. They can get visits and you just, but it's not where, you know, they sit right across from their family members. It's where they sit behind the glass. Mm. And you they, know what I they visit their family members. Have you ever watched the show Yellowstone? Oh, I watch it every week. I love Yellowstone. Okay, so I just found out about conjugal visits yesterday. Is that a thing? Yeah. I, okay. I, I don't know if they still, I'm sure they probably still do it at some of the, the lower levels. So we used to do it at level four institutions. Mm -hmm. And then they cut it out right before I left. They cut it out for a while because there was a lot of contraband that the people they were visiting were bringing in with them. You know, a lot of the ladies were uh, keistering their stuff, mm. you know, and I don't know if you're familiar with the term keister. I, I know, we don't need to elaborate. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to put an explicit sign next to my podcast. <laughs> but uh, they cut it out for a while. Oh, wow. Uh, because of that. But I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if it's still going on. Well, I was thinking about that the other day because I thought I didn't think it was a thing until I watched the most recent episode of Yellowstone, which we should talk about, by the way, because I thought you, you finished Yellowstone. Yeah. Oh, man. Was it good or what? <laughs> I love I love that show. 
Oh, it's so I, good. I love that show. And when when the guy walks in a room and, and sees Beth and he's thinking, oh, yeah, you know, it's time to party. And, right. You know, she kind of busted his bubble a little bit. Yeah, she she made him feel even worse than he did. <laughs> I, I'll say this, though. I'm not a huge fan of her character. Me and my mom were talking about it. You know when you don't notice something and then someone points it out and it's like the only thing you can notice? Mm-hmm. She's the most petty person. Like some of the things she does, it's like she would never be running a Fortune 500 company in the real world because of the way she acts in public. Like there's just no way anybody would ever hire her. And I think when my mom pointed it out to me, how annoying she was, I was like, oh gosh, you're right. Like she's just, yeah. She, uh, you know, she is, Beth is hardcore. Yeah. Um, I used to watch it all the time and then I was happy to watch in a rewind and Cindy came in and she goes, what's this? I go, I said, you remember Yellowstone? She goes, oh yeah, I remember you telling me about that. And I went back and I showed her the episode because when we went into the new, the new season, yeah, I let her watch. I went back and showed her the one where the, she got blown up in the building. Oh yeah. And she comes out and her back's all tore up. Mm-hmm. And after we finished watching Cindy goes, that woman is crazy. But I mean, you know, she, her back's all torn up. Yeah. All she wants is a cigarette. Right. I said, but yeah, I, Beth is one tough woman. Yeah, she's, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a good show. I My brothers, they haven't watched it, but they don't understand. They're like, why, why do they kill people all the time? I'm like, well, the best way I can explain it is it's basically the Sopranos of the Wild West. Like, they're a gang. Mm-hmm. Like, their lifestyle hasn't changed over the last 200 years. Which yeah, I think I'm going to start. All those guys are ex-cons. Yeah, and most I, of them are ex-cons. Yeah. Yeah, because you know when he puts the brand on them, you know those guys are. Yeah, they're all ex-cons, so they're all hardcore guys anyway. Yeah, well, it's it, that's kind of like uh, I don't know how familiar are you with um, like the New York gangs and the Five Families, stuff like that. Uh, not too familiar. I did have an uh, inmate that I supervised mm-hmm. that he know. Uh, you know, all the guys, you know, that were in a mob. He was from New York. Yeah. And from New York, New Jersey area. So Sammy the Bull Gravano, you know, he knew those guys. His dad uh, ran numbers that he used to tell me, you know, back in the day. And so he knew all, you know, all those guys, you know, the Gaudis and all those folks. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, most of the stuff that I know, I know through him because, you know, he grew up in that environment. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I was just going to say the brand is kind of like the oath that they take in those, you know, in those gangs, they take the oath and then they can't leave. They're stuck in it. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, and it's wild because, you know, the, the street gangs and the prison gangs, you know, are kind of, you know, are made up the same way, you know, believe it or not. I mean, they have captains, they have lieutenants, they have uh, sergeants and they have the foot soldiers. Mm. So they are based, you know, on the same kind of military, military system, kind of same thing that Yellowstone does, Mm -hmm. but, and they're highly organized. You know, they not only run what's going on inside the prison, they also run what's going on outside on the streets, Uh, drugs, prostitution, um, trafficking. They do all, they do all that stuff Uh, because most of the, the leaders I knew I had worked with 
you know, when I was working there at one of the prisons I was at, I knew the guy that ran the, the black gorilla family. I knew uh -huh. the leader of the Crips. I knew the leader of the Bloods. You know, I knew the leader of the Aryan Brotherhood. You know, I knew all those guys, you know, and would kind of, you know, sit and, and chat with them, you know, here and there. And it's funny, especially with the, the Mexican Mafia from Southern California, the leader of their group is actually a white dude. <laughs> but he was uh, what they refer to as a wetto. <laughs> Don't you know, tell CNN. Half, yeah, he was half white and half Mexican, but he looked like a white dude. Wow. You know, but um, yeah, but I, I sit down and kind of talk to him, you know, for a while and, you know, and he was a racist, but, you know, he didn't, you know, he'd sit and talk to you, you know, but I mean, working in, working in that environment, I mean, it's really, it's really crazy. When I left St. Quentin, I went to, it's called a California Medical Facility in Vacaville. They call it CMF. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have a not too many gang members there, but you have a lot of high profile people that are there. Uh, that's where I met Charlie Manson. Wow. Um, the, the trail site strangler that was uh, killing women in uh, Santa Cruz in the Santa Cruz area. Um, you have a, even back then you had some guys that were transitioning, you know, from men to become women. So you had a variety of people that was in that facility. And so when I left there, then I, I worked at uh, the women's facility in Stockton, Northern California women's facility. It doesn't exist anymore because they eventually, they, they shut it down uh, because of budgetary things and they shipped the women all over the place. And my last stop was Folsom. So that's where I retired from. And you were in the prison system for how long? You said 20 years? Uh, no, I was, I was there for 10 years. I got injured three times in a line of duty. So I had, I was forced to retire. Okay. So how long have you been retired then? Uh, a long, long time. You know, <laughs> I got, <laughs> I, I worked, uh, I started in the system at 22. Um, I worked until I was 32. Okay. And I'll be, I'll be 60 in March. Wow. And good benefits, I'm guessing from retirement. Is it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I still military. know some guys that are still working. Most of the guys that went into the system with me are, you know, they're all retired now. But uh, yeah, yeah, really, you know, really good benefits. Now, are you are you considered a state employee at that point? Is that how that works? Yeah, that's how, yeah, exactly. Okay, so the benefits are similar to like police or fire, or medical, stuff like that. Yeah, I have the, the same thing as, the same kind of benefits as CHP. Um, Actually, it's just, you know, CHP on the law enforcement level. Gotcha. But now with, uh, yeah, same, same kind of benefits that they do. Now with, with, uh, with medical, they, they treat it as if you, you had full time, right? So if like full time is 20 years, they would treat right. your retirement as that. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, not you good know, that you got hurt. You get hurt on, you get hurt on a job. We get what was referred to as industrial disability retirement because you were injured at work. So my retirement is tax-free. It's not taxable by the state or the federal government. Do you ever get, is there ever guys that like hurt themselves playing basketball or something, and then they just hobble into work and start something <laughs> just to, just or trip on the stairs just to yeah, get? Yeah, yeah, you know, we, we've had guys that have done that. We've had guys that 
have said that they got hurt at work and they couldn't work. And then uh, they get a tip that the person, you know, really, really isn't hurt. And they send our own investigative unit out to, uh, to check on them. And they're out playing basketball and lifting weights and, you know, doing all kinds of crap. And they get, you know, they get caught, either they get suspended, you know, or they get fired. If they get fired, then they have to pay all those benefits back. Oh, no. So, oh, yeah. So, oh. oh, yeah, you know, there was always guys, you know, getting caught for that. You know, for, for the ladies, uh, they're always, every now and then, you would always get a lady that would fall in love with one of the inmates. No. Oh, yeah. You know, they'd fall in love and... Um, would get caught having sex with one of the inmates. What? So you is know? there? Okay, so do they? They have they just taken women out of the equation then most of the time? Um. Yeah, you know, you you can kind of say that, and you know, and there's always an investigation. You know, some of the gals they would wait until the guy, if they got away with it, they would wait until he got out of prison. You know, and then next thing you know, you know, he's moved in with her. But you know, there was always some kind of you know, some kind of scandal going on. You know, if it wasn't, you know, the when I worked at the male facility, you know, it was a women sleeping with the male inmates. Um, and at the female prison, same thing with really? the officers, you know, getting caught, you know, because I mean, contrary to what people believe, not all women in prison are ugly. You know, there were some very, 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 you know, attractive women, you know, that were in the prison system. You know, and, and I'll, I'll tell you this a little bit, and I, and I won't elaborate unless you want me to, is that at the Say what you want, women's right? prison, they, there was, when you would get fruit, you get fruit and food into the prison, uh, there was two pieces of fruit that you always had to keep your eye on. And they were always bananas and cucumbers. And you know, and you know, I'm going with there. So whenever we would get those in, we had to watch those extremely carefully. And you had to always make sure as soon as they came in, they would have to cut them in halves or in thirds, you know, to keep things out of, you know, to keep people out of trouble. Why? No, don't elaborate. Don't elaborate any further. That's crazy. So I had a question. Um, I, well, I got a couple, but you were, you were talking about, I kind of slipped over this, but you were talking about, um, Cindy earlier and how bad was the racial disparity in the eighties in California? I don't know anything. I mean, I was you know, born in 97. I, what I felt like I didn't know California was California pretty bad back then. Uh, depending on where you lived in, we lived in Sacramento, which is kind of close to, uh, Orangeville. Mm -hmm. and Roseville, those areas. Right. It was pretty bad back then, because right after I got out of military, it happened to me first before it happened to her. I got out of military, and I was going out trying to find a job. and went to a, a job interview in Roseville and did the interview, was on my way back home, sitting in my car at the red light, you know, and I keep hearing someone yelling, you know, uh, Hey, nigger, what are you doing out here? You know, and, and I'm like, okay, I don't know who they're talking to. So, you know, I mean, I'm born and raised in the South, so I didn't really trip. Right. Um, so I'm sitting at the light, and then next thing I know, this dude walks up to, and it's, it's you know, it's summertime. Right. Dude walks up to the passenger side of my car, 
And he's yelling at me. And I'm like, are you talking to me? He's like, yeah, you know, you're the only nigger I see here. And I'm like, oh, man. So I used to, I kind of heard how it was in the area. So I used to keep a little Louisville Slugger baseball bat in my yeah. car that was about that big. And I took their kid away from my car, you know. So he came around the other side, on the driver's side, you know, and I had, because it was hot, it was summer, I had my window rolled down, I had my arm on the windsill, on the windowsill, and he grabbed my arm, I said, you know what, dude, you better let, you better get your hands off of me, and I happened to look out of the corner of my eye, and across the street, coming in the opposite direction, was a Sacramento sheriff, and I know he had, because he was the first one at the light, so I knew I had to see what was going on, so, but he may have thought we were just talking, so, you know, he, um, he tried to reach in and grab me. So I, I grabbed him by his collar and I pushed him against the medium that was next to us. And he kind of fell back and I opened the door and I opened the door with the Louisville slugger. I was getting out of the car and the sheriff kind of realized what was going on and he hit his lights like, whoo, whoo, whoo. And the guy turned around and ran and jumped back in his truck, you know, with his other buddies. So the light chains were pulling off and, you know, and they're next to me, you know, you know, yelling all this crap. And, and back then I was hot headed. Yeah. You know, so I'm like, you know, we'll just pull over, you know, and then as we got to this other street, you know, they got over and went down another street, but with Cindy, you know, it, um, yeah, it, it did. It, it scared the crap out of her. She didn't, she didn't feel safe for a while after that. Wow. Yeah. So, but they had always, you know, they had like cross burning, you know, in that area there, um, there was a lot of a skinhead and KKK activity, you know, in that what, part of California at that time. What's the what's the the point of the cross burning? Are they are they satanic groups? Is that what I mean? It's pretty satanic activity, I'd say, to be racist in that to that degree, but like, or to any degree really. But um, are they satanic groups? Is that what the cross burning is all about? No, actually, you know, KKK thought that they were they considered themselves Christian, but they burn crosses. But they burn crosses, you know, which is kind of ironic. You know, I mean, just, yeah, just crazy. But, you know, it was something that you really didn't hear about other, you know, in the South. And, you know, since I grew up in Texas, you know, Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, you know, those areas, you know, the country. I mean, it wasn't uncommon. Even when I was, you know, I was born in 62, when I was growing up, you know, during those times. Now, I was in third grade when they, no, I was in the second grade, going into third grade when they desegregated the schools in Texas in 19, I think it was 1969, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. And that within itself is an experience because, you know, I grew up in an all black neighborhood. We had some Hispanics, uh, very few white families, but basically an all black community. And when they desegregated the schools and they sent us to a predominantly white school, it, you know, I still remember at that young age, you know, how crazy that was, how crazy that experience was. That's nuts. I, there's so, to me, and when people don't understand it, there's so many parallels, in my opinion, between, you know, um, uh, 
the civil rights and slavery and abortion today. Like I just see so many parallels with not necessarily, well, yeah, kind of with, you know, how, obviously how people are treated, but definitely the mindset behind both of those two things, I think is just, um, yeah, I think, I think it's crazy. Like people celebrate, celebrated slavery, they championed it. And now people are championing the murder of children. It's, it's so, it's so similar to me. Just the, well, you know, a lot of that has to do is that people don't, they don't know, they don't understand history, you know, because as I was saying before, you have the, the KKK that believe they were Christians. Um, and a lot of people don't know that uh, slavery, um, the formation of the Ku Klux Klan, all of that stuff was done by the Democratic Party. And they didn't know that. Mm -hmm. um, Margaret Sanger, uh, <laughs> who created Planned Parenthood, you know, was a white supremacist. Is she worse than Hitler? Agency just with extermination of black people. Yeah. Well, well okay, so talk about that. Because I actually wrote it on my notes and you'd, you'd mentioned it. But talk about Margaret Sanger, because she was, she was a known racist, correct? Mm-hmm. And, and she purposefully put Planned Parenthood in black neighborhoods to like it, in as, as a form of eugenics, right? To prevent exactly. black people from breeding and, and having children and producing, right? Exactly. She also went, she went to a lot of black churches and convinced a lot of black pastors at black churches to send their people to Planned Parenthood, you know, as it, you know, for medical treatment for women, you know, that sort of thing. And, and they did it, you know, and the sad thing is, is even to today, that when you talk to most blacks and most black politicians, you know, they don't have a problem with Planned Parenthood. Um, most of them don't know the history, some of them do. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was it was a common practice back then, you know, to to murder babies and when people are and when people are talking about you know crime and you know black on black violence and all this kind of you know they they have no idea they have no clue what they're talking about i mean because you have there are i would probably say hundreds of thousands of black babies that are killed in a womb every year every well, year i think it's the highest demographic and i i'm not 100% sure, and I don't really have the ability to pull it up right now, but I think it's the highest demographic of uh, abortions, one, because of the geographic location of Planned Parenthood in most cases, but, you know, you look at, you look at the, uh, the population, the black population in the United States is 13%. Mm -hmm. If those babies were allowed to be alive, I mean, it would probably be closer to like 20 to 25%. Yeah, it would be much higher, and that's where you find most Planned Parenthoods in black and brown communities. And they're put there strategically, you know, for a purpose. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's a sad fact. And it's, there's, there's just so much that people that don't tend to, I like to research, mm -hmm. that don't tend to research and, and don't know much about the history of the black community. You know, they get sold a bill of goods you know, every, every year, their entire life. Mm -hmm. And they still fall for it. So you you brought up in uh, in the text that we had uh, Black Lives Matter and kind of a controversial thing, but I don't really understand why. 
Um, and well, I, I do understand why it's because people have no ability to actually look at the facts, but you, you've spoken about BLM. I have zero issue with the statement black lives matter. Um, I think the fact that you can't say all lives matter is, uh, is a, a form of racism in and of itself, but the organization, um, I would go as far as to say is, uh, has become a terrorist organization in the last couple of years. What, what are your thoughts on BLM and do you disagree with the statement that they're a terrorist organization? No, they're, they're a terrorist organization. Before they chased it, they used to have in their platform before people really started discovering mm -hmm. what it was really about, that one of their main things is that they wanted to destroy the, I think they call it, you know, the westernized family. The nuclear that, family. Right, you know, and yeah. they are, you know, they're a terrorist organization. When people ask me, you know, do I support Black Lives Matter? I'm like, no, because I, I read on their platform what they stood for. Yeah. I, you know, I don't agree with their platform. And, you know, I don't agree with what they're standing for because if Black Lives Matter, then all Black Lives Matter, the people, the children like in Chicago that are being murdered on a regular basis mm -hmm. every weekend. You know, you don't see any marches for those folks. No. You know, when black police officers are, are murdered in a line of duty, you don't see that. You know, so every time there's a, a, a black person is, is murdered in America, you don't see the marches. You don't see Al Sharpton. You know, you don't see Joy Reid on MSNBC. You know, you don't see any of these folks, you know, uh, Don Lemon that are screaming foul because of these black lives being lost. So no, you know, I don't agree with the platform. To me, they are a terrorist organization. And quite frankly, I don't need someone to tell me that my life matters. <laughs> you know, I don't need someone to say, oh, you know, because you're black, your life matters. You know, God tells me that my life matters. Right. And that's all, and that's all that matters, you know, to me. And I had, well, before Cindy and I came to Las Vegas, we led a life group uh, with only blacks in the group. Everybody else was white. And when the Black Lives Matter thing started happening, you know, they were like, oh, Black Lives Matter. And I'm like, guys, do you know what this organization is really about? And of mm -hmm. course they didn't. They just heard the, the term Black Lives Matter and they thought, right. oh, this is cool. It's a and they started cigarette. financially supporting the organization. And one or two of them had actually been a marches. And I, I go, when I get home, we had met that night. I go, when I get home, I'm going to send you guys what it talks about on this website. You need to go and read it for yourself. And they did. And like, oh, my God, I didn't know that this is what they stood for. But, yeah, I, I know, you know, when people tell me, you know, oh, you don't support Black Lives Matter? I'm like, no. You know, and I walked around. <laughs> I walked I designed this shirt that I walked around with that said, all lives matter. And I wore it to uh, SeaWorld in San Diego. And Sin is like, are you sure you want to wear that shirt? And I go, yeah, I'm sure I want to, because I want to see if anybody's going to say anything. Walked through the whole park all day long, got a couple of looks, but not one person said anything. Right. Didn't say, you know, didn't say anything at all. You know, and I tell people, you know, blue lives matter. Well, how can you say blue life? I go, well, number one, I'm a retired blue life. Uh, right. and, other, and in addition to that, 
you know, yeah, you know, any, you know, Asian lives, black lives, Hispanic lives, we all, God says we all matter. Right. You know, and, and that's, that's a gist, you know, of what, you know, of what I stand for. I said, well, you know, then if you don't like black lives matter, then it means that, you know, you don't care about black people. I go, I've been black for 59 years. So, you know, I care about myself. Yeah, you know, so you know, I I grew up in the south. So, I care about my wife and my kids. Yeah, I go, yeah, you know, so but you know, I mean, it's just it's such stupidity. The whole organization it, it's it's such stupidity, you know, but it's it's all, you know, that's all, it's an additional political thing to, you know, like people when I meet someone, I said, well, you know, as an African-American, I'm like, no, 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 don't, don't call me that. Have you ever been to Africa? No. And that's why I tell people I wasn't raised in Africa. I've been to Africa when I was in the Navy. Okay. You know, I was not, to me, that, saying that if you're Italian-American means that you were born in Italy and you migrated to the United States. So now you're Italian-American. And I tell people the same thing. I was not born in Africa and then moved to America. I was born and raised here, you know, and I bleed red, white, and blue. So don't call me an African-American. If you want to call me anything, you can call me black if you yeah. want to do that. But don't call me African-American. I can't, I can't stand that term because history, you go back to history, I mean, they used to call us Negroes, you know, and then black. And then every 20 years or so, the term changes. Right. You know, colored, you know, I mean. Now, it, it's, it goes, now it's people of color. Yeah, now it's people of color and African. And I tell, don't, you know, don't call me that. Even when I tell black folks that, you know, well, you know, but as a fellow African-American, no, don't call me that. I wasn't born in Africa. Yeah. I was born right here in the USA. Well, it's it's a weird thing too because people use african american as kind of a catch all and sometimes people aren't even american or african <laughs> like you know like they're i mean i've met people that are just african or that are british and people are like oh you know and they just see that they're they see that they're black which is the correct term politically correct just in general it's correct you know we call you know, people that have, you know, we call like I'm white. Um, but some people, you know, they get called uh, Mexican, some people, you know, Indian, even if they've never been there, because that's just like the term. But right. African Americans, not a good term, because not everybody's from America. And, yeah, it, you know, and, and even the Africans in Africa, don't like the term African American. You well, know, they're not, you know, yeah, African, they're not African American. Africans really don't like black people in America. And a lot of people don't know that. They don't. You know, because they said, you know, we're lazy, we're spoiled. You know, we have no idea, you know, what hardship is. You know, and a lot of what they say is true. And, and there are no true black people in America where you're just strictly black and nothing else. I mean, I did my ancestry DNA. I have Russian. I have Scandinavian, I have English, um, I have, I'm, I'm part Irish. So, you know, when I tell people, you know, you're not completely black, go do your ancestry DNA and you'll find that out. So, 
I always enjoy when St. Patrick's Day comes around. I have my shirt, <laughs> I put it on, and it says, you know, kiss, you know, kiss me, I'm I'm Irish-ish. Ish. <laughs> and I, I wear it every time. And people look at me on that day and, and they kind of laugh. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm 10% Irish. You know, so I I'm not I'm not all black. You know, nobody is all black. Mm. Hmm. It's interesting. You know, when I was in, I was in Portland, um, during, you know, the George Floyd and, and all these riots and, and, you know, I'd have family members and friends be like, Oh, you don't support black people. And I'm like, no, first of all, I, I don't support, no, you're right. I don't support black people disproportionately than I support white people. Like I don't, I don't support if somebody's, if they don't provide a, like a service better, I'm not going to support them more you know like i'm I'm just going to support people equally um and and i was like and i definitely don't support you know the rioting and looting that's going on in my town right now and i don't support the you know people getting trampled and the 17 year old girls at target that are getting pushed around and beat up because somebody wants a a tv as reparations which doesn't even make sense and um like i don't support that and i lost friends over that like this is how crazy it is because whenever something social comes out like that, people are, and that's how you know, that, that's how you know, like, who's a follower and who's, who's a leader is the ones that when this stuff happens, they'll change their whole political view or their whole, you know, worldview, or they'll cast aside their religion or their faith or their relationships just yeah. to fit into this crowd, this, you know, go with people that are going with the stream. And, um, and I saw a lot of that. And I saw everything I needed to know. I mean, not everything, but being in, being in Oregon, where all the people rioting were mas- or mostly white in a place that, you know, is like three states away from, well, more than three states away from the George Floyd incident. And these people are rioting and looting. And me and my buddies went to downtown Portland and there's these marches and stuff. And there's a, a hole in a window that somebody had thrown a brick or a rock through. And I was like, oh, that's terrible. And I look a little closer. This store is owned by an African person, like an actual, like this person migrated from Africa. It's right. an African clothing store. Um, I don't know what their attire is called that they wear, but um, I don't know if you'd know, but um, no. they're, they're selling like African artifacts and attire and the person is like is from cameroon or some like nigeria or something mm-hmm. and i'm like yeah hey hey blm like why why'd you put a hole in their window <laughs> i thought we were supposed <laughs> to be supporting black businesses you just you just ruined this person's storefront but good job Idiot. well you know the interesting stuff about all of it is is that when you look at george floyd you look at uh the kid uh the other I can't remember his name now, but you look at all these instances. Was it Trayvon? Is that the people that they're riding for, they're all thugs. Mm. You know, I mean, George Floyd was a thug. Yeah. He, he, was a, he was a five-time loser, had been in and out of prison five times. The last time he went is that he dressed up as a utility worker, went to this lady's house, kicked in a door, him and some of his buddies, ransacked the house, his friends ransacked the house while he held a gun to her stomach, she was pregnant. 
and told that, told that lady, you know, give us the drugs, give us the money, you know, are we going to kill you? She's screaming, saying, I don't, I don't have any drugs. I don't have any money. And she was black. And when they didn't find anything, then they all jumped in a car and they took off. You know, so they, they treat this guy like he was some angel. The guy was a thug. I mean, should he have died the way that he died? No. No. I mean, the guy shouldn't have put his, you know, his knee on his neck, you know, because in a training that I've had working in the prisons, that's not how you subdue someone. Right. Especially when they're handcuffed. You know, yeah. that's that's just a no-no. So I mean, him going to prison was a good thing. I mean, because what he did was wrong. Yeah. But the people that they're elevating, you know, and they're out there protesting for and Black Lives Matter is burning down buildings for. I mean, it's just, it's stupid. I mean, you're making these guys out to appear that they were the regular blow, you know, Joe Blow that went to work every day, provided for his family. No, these guys, they were thugs. They were all thugs. There's only one case that I can think of is that. Ahmaud Aubrey. Yes. Well, but you he know. wasn't, I mean, he wasn't in the wrong when he got hurt, but he, he had been in trouble with the law quite a bit, I think, too. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, his was, his was bad. That was, that, those guys, yeah, that was bad. Yeah, but, but the rest of them, you know, they're all thugs, you know, so. Yeah. And, you know, in my background, every time it happened, I'd have all, you know, all these people that I know, they were texting and emailing me, hey, what do you think about this one? It's like, the guy's, you know, the guy's a thug, you know? I mean, it's, that is one less criminal that we have to worry about. You know, because he's black, why does that matter? He's still a thug. If he was white or Mexican, he'd still be a thug. Yeah. You know, so, the, you know, and all this, yeah. you know, this stuff that they're doing that, you know, especially Democrats that are doing to try and, you know, to keep us divided and all this crap. I mean, it's just, it's, it's stupid. It's I mean, I, I always tell people, the people that I care about, that I worry about, is the the young black man that's on his way to work or he's on his way to school or he's minding his own business and if he gets you know harassed or shot you know by you know police officer but uh, but most but most young black men you know they don't have those i mean i raised two mm -hmm. you know and I always taught my boys is that if you encounter the police, it's yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. You do what they tell you to do. And 9.9% .9 of the time out of 10, you know what? You'll walk away or drive away and you won't have any problems, you know. But it's the guys that get all mouthy and, you know, why are you pulling me over? You know, you're pulling me over because I'm black and, no, I mean, I'm not going to say that stuff like that doesn't happen. I mean, it's happened to me. The driving while black thing has happened to me, you know, once or twice. But, you know, all of this crap, you know, when, and you see it's only an uproar when it's a white police officer and it's a, and it's a black suspect or a black right. person, you know, that dies. But, you know, they don't care, you know, if it's a white officer, you know, killing a white suspect, which happens more than it does with blacks. Far you know, more. and people tend to ignore that. Yeah. But I mean, it's just, you know, it's it's stupid. In any profession, you're gonna have good cops, you're gonna have bad cops. Good doctors, bad doctors, good nurses, bad nurses, plumbers, any occupation, 
that you're working. You know, you're going to have somebody that, you know, really shouldn't be in the job, you know, that they're in. But, you know, this, this Black Lives Matter, you know, and I, the most criticism that I get about the Black Lives Matter issue, it isn't from Black folks, it's from white folks. Because they tell me that I've been called a Black white supremacist more times than I can count. What's that because Chappelle? I don't go along with the narrative. What's that? What's that Chappelle bit that he did? Was it? Is it Tyrone Biggums? No, that was. Uh, oh my gosh, there was one where he's like the black clan leader, but he's he's white, or he's yeah, or, yeah, he takes a hood off and he's white. Or he's no, 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 black? he's yeah. he's a he's a clan leader, but he's blind. That's what it was. Yeah. 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 I can't remember. Oh gosh. I know what but, you're talking about. But it like at the end it like says that he uh, he divorced his wife because he finds out he's black and he divorced his wife because she was like a uh, like an inward lover or something like. That. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's crazy. I mean, and it's and you so, have these people that perpetrate this stuff. Jesse's Jesse Smollett. Oh my gosh. Per you know perfect example. Come on, who you know who goes out at two o'clock in the morning? at minus 16 degrees, walks the subway to get a sandwich and is approached by two white dudes wearing MAGA hats in Chicago, you know, and, you know, and then puts a rope, you know, throws bleach on you, puts a rope around your neck, and then you come home, you walk home with the rope still around your neck. Come on, who was going to believe the thing Who's is, though, if there, was, believe that? if there was two white dudes at 2 o'clock <clears> in the morning walking down chicago with maga hats they'd probably get their asses beat yeah that's what i mean in chicago yeah you know and i, and I don't shot. think that you, you know you're going to find two white dudes in chicago 16 below you know zero looking for hunting black folks i don't think you i don't think you're gonna find that you know I mean, it, it's it, just the whole i mean and he's just he's an embarrassment yeah. you know he wanted attention you know, he, he said that, oh, I go hard after 45. He did all of this because of Trump. I go hard after 45. And so he sent his people after me. Like, come on, dude. You know, he wasn't getting paid enough money on Empire, a show that I've never watched. You know, because yeah. I, you know, I just don't, I don't watch those kind of shows because to me, they're just, you know, they're, uh, you know, a, a 2000 version of a menstrual show. So I don't even watch those kind of shows. Right. But I mean, it's just it's it's a holding it's a whole embarrassment. It's a total embarrassment. And I I wrote a letter to the the judge who's going to be sentencing him, and kind of gave him my thoughts on the case. So, you know, we'll see what happens. He needs to go to prison. You know, most people are saying, oh, he'll get probation and he'll get a fine. No, he needs to go to prison. You know, yeah. he's he's capable. Uh, on the charges that he was convicted of, he can get 15 years for that. Uh, in addition, he perjured himself on a, when he was on a witness stand. He can get an additional five years for that. And he should, you know, the judge should give him 15 years, a minimum five years. But the guy, he needs to go to prison because all the money that he cost the Chicago PD, all the uproar that he caused the country, yeah, he needs to go. He, he needs to be made an example of. He needs to go to prison. Yeah, I, I I don't have any particular opinion on the sentencing. I think he's a dumb a dumb guy. I think he you know did something really stupid, and and I think this whole thing, you know, the reason that 
the reason that they're, I feel like they're, it's one, I think it's just a demonic agenda, a divisive demonic agenda to ruin America. I mean, America sends more missionaries. America has, you know, more churches, more people have come to Christ in America, or, you know, 50% of the world's immigrants come to America. America has been for a long time, a city on a hill, um, not in every aspect, but, you know, we, we did in slavery we were the first major world superpower to do that and we set a trend that hey this is an immoral this is a sin mm-hmm. um you know we split from great britain um we came in and you know we we ended world war ii you know america's not done a lot of really amazing things mm-hmm. um in the name of you know equality in the name of you know all men are created equal and a lot of times in the name of you know christianity whether or not it's necessarily those people that are doing it are professing Christians, but it's still in the spirit of, you know, of God, it's still in the spirit of, you know, Jesus's character. And, and I really feel it's a, a divisive, it's just a divisive issue. It's just a demonic divisive agenda to, you know, to get, you know, people like you and me to hate each other because of the color of our skin, because of our political affiliation, because of whatever. And, and I think the reason that they have to make these criminals and crooks look like heroes is because there's not a lot of heroes that are getting killed by the police like that. You know, I mean, the thing, I think the thing to realize too is the police were called for some reason, whether or not the police did a good job when they got there, um, you know, that's for the courts to decide. But the fact that they were called, I've never had the police called on me. Never. You know, I've never put a gun to a pregnant woman's stomach. I've never, um, I've never done drugs. I've never done any of these things. And I could, if something immoral happened to me, you would never hear about it. I guarantee it. I guarantee you would never hear. I mean, maybe local news, but it wouldn't be a George Floyd case. I guarantee it. You you, and, and that's, that's the thing. I mean, when you look at, you look at the racist narrative, when you really look at that, that only comes from one side of the aisle. It always has, you know, and it always will. Because when they have nothing else for them that works, they use race. Right. You know, and I mean, I'll be 60 years old. I grew up in Texas. You know, I've, I've seen enough of that stuff my entire life. You know, but at the same time, I mean, I don't walk around you know, looking around corners for the racist boogeyman, mm. you know, that's out there to get me. I don't think like that. You know, I, I don't do that. You know, I mean, I have, I have family members that are white, you know, that are Filipino, you know, and I mean, I just don't, I don't look, and I raised our kids like that. We don't look at things like that. Mm. I mean, some of the, the, the kindest people that when, when I was before Cindy and I got married, this is we've been married, you know, some of the most kindest people that have ever anything that have ever done anything for us that have helped us in ways that members of our own family wouldn't, you know, I have all been white, Mm. you know, so I don't, you know, I don't play that, you know, that little game that, you know, that, you know, we're, we're, we're inherently racist. And I mean, look at, look at the progress, you know, we've had, we had a black president, you know, for eight years, you know, somebody I didn't vote for, but um, <laughs> I mean, just because I was too young, you know, all, I mean, all the stuff that we've had, 
you know, that we've, we've progressed from. I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't make well, any, doesn't make any sense. Well, you know, there are so many yeah. good people, you know, out there that they tend to forget what Martin Luther King taught. You, mm -hmm. you know, you judge someone based on their character and not by the color of their skin. Right. You know, but I mean, I, like I said, I mean, I, I get a lot of that stuff because I don't think, you know, like I'm supposed to think because of the color of my skin. And yeah. I, you know, I'm a free thinker. I think the way that I, that I choose to think, I research things. Right. I don't take anything, you know, verbatim that people tell me. I mean, right. I listen to what they tell me, then I go and look it up and say, okay, well, you know, is this, is this true or not? Yeah. And I think that most, you know, people need to do that. But when you, you look at Black Lives Matter, you see that that organization has been taken over by white liberals. You know, there's um, Malcolm X uh, has, you know, has said, and I can send it to you, you can see it yourself, is that the biggest threat to the black community is the white liberal. And I never, because I, I read his book, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, and I didn't understand, you know, what that meant. And then after I, I kind of thought about it and kind of seen the way things are happening, I go, you know what, you know, he's absolutely what he's absolutely right. I mean, every time I've gone, you know, I can always kind of tell when I'm around people that think that way. Oh, you know, you're black, you're so articulate, you know, and it's always been it's always not, been a liberal. Am I not supposed to be? <laughs> I well, mean, the, you know, like my state, I mean not my home state, but uh, where I spent my last three years of school or last four years, Oregon. I mean, they've just changed, they're changing the standards for what black kids have to meet for, you know, school requirements. Basically saying like, hey, because you're black, you're inherently stupider. I mean, that's the most racist thing I've heard. It is. You know, like <laughs> the standard should be where the standard is. And if you can't meet it, then, you know, hey, if there's an issue with, you know, okay, why are, why are, why are black kids, you know, disproportionately not meeting these standards? Let's address that. Let's not, uh, let's not change the bar. And that's what I feel like we're doing as a culture too, is we're just changing the bar. You know, the, the bar for the military has gone down, you know, you know, to get certain people in the bar for uh, education has gone down. I mean, it's just, it's constant. It's it annoying is, is know, what it is. But, you know, this belief that, you know, all minority children, you know, they can't learn, they can't compete on the same level as other people. And when that law came out that they did uh, in Oregon, and it talks about, you know, we're going to eliminate the standards for math, you know, for English, for reading and all this crap. I'm like, okay, so, you know, you're going to be graduating a bunch of kids and putting them out in a world that can't compete, you know, with other people. I right. mean, United States, our education level is already, you know, much lower than Europe and China and all these other countries. But, you know, you're just going to put more ignorance, you know, out on the street. And in the way to combat that is to, if you want to put kids on an equal playing field, then give them school vouchers where their parents can take them wherever they want to go. To where schools, if your school is underperforming, they can take that school voucher and take them to another school. Well, that's what Trump advocated for was school choice. Yes, you know, but the, you know, but the Democrats they, they don't want that. They want to keep they want to keep black people stupid and dependent on it on the Democratic Party and dependent on the government. Yep. I mean, Sid and I are raising three kids. Right. You know, our oldest son, Philip, has, you know, two degrees as a bachelor's and he, and he graduated in June with a master's in business. 
Our youngest son, Cameron, has three degrees. Graduated with a bachelor's in sociology, a master's in public, public administration, and a master's in criminal justice. Lindsay's a junior at Biola, you know, that, and she's a psych major, mm. you know. So, I mean, we are the perfect example of parents that really told our kids how important education is, you know, and pushed them, you know, to do their best. And now look, I mean, you know, I mean, they're, they're great kids, you know, with a high level of education. That's, right. and that's something that any parent can do, regardless of what color you are, but there's an opportunity. If, if you could get Democrats to authorize school vouchers so kids can leave underperforming schools and go to better schools, you know, we see a big difference, but they want to do that because they want to keep minorities under a thumb but even more so, they don't want to go against the teachers' unions mm. because that's what helps keep them in power. You know, and the thing is, too, it, was, it would probably help those underdeveloped schools, too, because it's competition. Right. And it's just, I mean, a lot of it's a push for socialism, too, because socialism puts the people in power and more power. You know, it, it destroys the middle class is what it does. And... Um, I mean, like competition, I mean, that's basically what America's built on, right, is competition. Right. Capitalism is competition. And we've seen that it's brought up everybody. You know, America is the freest, richest country. We have, you know, probably one of the lowest levels of poverty in any developed first world country. Um, and there's not a ton of developed first world countries out there to pull from, you know, to begin with. Um, and so... Yeah, it's just, it's, it's weird. And, and I think, you know, cause competition, you know, it's, it's like that, um, you know, if everybody gets the same thing, nobody's going to work. You know, there's a reason why you have all these illegals coming across the border. You know, that's why they're abandoning their countries and sneaking into our country because they know that we have more opportunities here. Yeah. Well, you I know? did when, when Michelle and I were together, I did a podcast with her and, you know, because she's a Mexican citizen and she talked about it too. Like America's the gold standard for um, the economy, for, you know, work, for um, religious freedom, for just freedom in general, the justice system, the police force, everything is the gold standard. Right. You know, and I don't care if, if you want to migrate here, that's fine. But do it the right way. Go through right. the system just like everybody else. Right. And then, you know, you're free to come here. But I mean, when you, when you just walk across our border, you're telling us, I don't give a crap about what you think. I don't care about your laws. I just want to come here. And then, you know, you want to, you know, you come here. A lot of people are coming here now to get free stuff. When you start, especially when we left California, when you're giving people free education, free housing, free money, as far as, you know, as welfare, you know, you're giving them food stamps, you're giving them TANF, you give, you're offering people all this stuff. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an attraction, yeah. you know, to come here, you know, which, I mean, like I said, I don't care if you migrate here, but I mean, if you're going to do it, do it the right way, because you got people, you're jumping ahead of people that are waiting in line that are trying to, that are waiting to do it the right way, you know, and you're just thumbing your nose at them and said, Hey, I'm just going to walk in and, because you owe me. Right. You know, we don't, we don't owe you anything. 
we owe you a plane ticket back to where you came from. Other than that, we don't owe you anything. Yeah. And that one's a, you know, obviously I, I lived in Mexico for a little bit and dated somebody from that country. And, and I, I've seen it, you know, it is sad because the process, you know, the process for a Canadian to get in this country and the process for a Mexican to get in this country is a lot different because Canada is a developed first world country sure. and the drug trafficking, the amount of security we have to have on our Southern border, people always say, Oh, there's no kids in cages in Canada and in all this stuff. Well, there's more kids in cages now than in the previous administration. Right. But, um, but the thing is too, you know, it, and it is sad. I don't think everybody that crosses is a bad person or yeah. is a, you know, I think they're looking for opportunity and I think, you know, it, it's like, I mean, it is a law and they they do need to do it the right way. I, I agree with that. And I'm not, I'm not going against anything you said. I, I agree with you. Um, but is it the most atrocious evil thing? No, I don't think so. I think the, the biggest issue is, you know, the fact that somebody from Canada that's doing the right thing or, or, you know, there, there could be somebody that's worse from Canada that comes over and can get over easier than somebody that's, you know, never had any kind of record in Mexico just because of other people, the cartels, the traffickers, the coyotes, not the animals, um, you know, coming over and they ruin it for everyone. And I think, you know, that's a problem that they should address in, in Mexico. I personally think if, if you gave, um, if Mexico had what, what the equivalent of our second amendment, I think that stuff would go away in about five to 10 years. I think, I think the, the biggest thing that keeps gangs and places like that in check is knowing that if you walk into somebody's house, there's a possibility you're going to get shot. But these cartels, they walk around, they go, they slap people up on the street. They do, you know, all this stuff. They go into people's houses, kill women and children because there's no opposition to them. The police are a cartel. The, the politicians are put in place by cartel. They're all just, they have their, their finger in every pie because nobody can stand up to them. They're the bully. But once somebody stands up to them and punches the bully in the face, they can't really do anything. And I think, you know, I, I've had this conversation with a lot of people recently, um, you know, about, about guns, just guns in general. And, you know, why anytime any politician says we need to get rid of the guns or whatever, I, I'm just like, dude, you've got a different agenda than uh, keeping kids safe. I know you do. Um, because that's what happens in, in those countries. And it ruins it for everybody. I do agree that there is a process and they need to follow it. Um, but I also can see um, I, I don't think they're like evil people for doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can, you know, and I can see the draw of coming up because they do know that we're the, the freest nation on earth. Um, right. An example is, is that Sin and I owned a home in Mexico for 13 years. Right. In San Felipe. Um, before we did that, we made an appointment. We still live in the Bay Area. We made an appointment with the Mexican um, embassy in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. We went over there and sat down and talked uh, to one of the representatives and told us that we're, we're thinking about buying some property in Mexico. Um, what are your laws? You know, explain to us what we need to do. You know, what's the process because it's your country, you know, right. and we want to do things the right way. Sure. You know, in order to own property in your country. So tell us what we need to do. 
So he, he sat down and he explained everything that we needed to do, what the process would like, um, you know, FM1, FM2, FM3, uh, the things that you need to do, because we were planning on retiring there. So, and that was the purpose of us going, you know, so we wanted to go through the process. And we told him, said, whatever the process is, however long, you know, it takes, you know, just let us know what we need to do. Right. Because we have respect, you know, for their country. Sure. You know, and we had the house there. We sold it a, a few years ago before we came here. But love the people of Mexico. You know, we, all of our, most of our family members wouldn't go because they were afraid, you know, of the, you know, the cartels and, and everything that was going down there. But, you know, we made a lot of friends, still have a lot of, you know, friends that were there. Um, people that, you know, if we told a couple of people said, hey, if you ever decide that you want to come to the U.S. and you, you want somebody to speak for you, only if you come here legally. Right. You know, then, you know, we would be more than happy, you know, to, I don't know if it, they consider it sponsoring you. Yeah, or, so it's a sponsorship. So that's you know, actually, whatever it is. You yeah, know, it's we, a, we that's what Michelle do. was looking into at one point. So, yeah, because there's there's some fa there's some fantastic people there. Yeah. They just want a better opportunity, you know, for themselves, you know, and for their children. Right. You know, and you know, and, and that's a great thing. You know, I just where I have a have I have a problem with is that if you're going to come, come the right way. Because for every legal person that comes over here, you know, you're harming the people that are trying to get in here legally from Mexico or wherever it is that they're coming from. Right. You know, you're just jumping over those people, you know, and you're making it the time period that they have to wait much longer. Right. Well, and more difficult, you know, for them. Yeah. You know, and that's that's why we, you know, we have a process. I understand that there's people that are trying to get here because they're trying to escape oppression you know, and, and all of those things that go along with it. But that, you know, that's why we have laws. Right. You know, and if if I'm going to go to your country like I did, you know, like Sin and I did, you know, to get our home in Mexico, you know, I want to go through the process because I don't want to get caught in your country. And then this is, hey, you know, you're here legally. Right. You know, so, you know, we, you know, we got to boot you. You know, which if we were there legally and we got caught, then hey, you know, I, okay, yeah, we, we did the wrong thing. Yeah, sure. You know, like to do that. But, you know, it's just a, it's just a mess that, and Congress has the ability to do that. They have the ability to fix it. And they just won't, whether they're on either side of the aisle. Right. They can fix it. They just chose it not to. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a mess. Yeah. Well, hey, Gary, I got to get over to practice in uh, about 30 minutes. So, um, and I, I appreciate you coming on. I do. Okay. You, I, it was one of the first questions I asked and you, you slid by it and I don't know if you meant to or not, but Charles Manson, what was your interactions with him? Like, <laughs> I love talking to Charlie Manson. Really? I, I love talking to Charlie. He was the biggest character you know, it depends because, you know, um, Charlie was crazy, sure. but when he's, when he's on his meds, you know, I mean, he didn't like black people at all, but when he was on his meds, 
I mean, you could have a reasonable conversation with him. You know, I mean, he was engaging, highly, highly intelligent. You could talk to him about anything, but when he wasn't on his meds, oh man, he was, he, he was the total nutcase. And, and I've talked to him in, in both instances. Um, you know, Charlie never murdered anybody. Right. He got people to do the killing for him. Right. He manipulated them. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was a really good manipulator. Uh, one of the times that I had a conversation with him, um, and he wasn't on his meds, and you could always tell because his hair was all over the place. And, you know, and he'd been, he would be in a cell arguing with himself. And so I was working, I was working overtime, and I was working with him. And, and he hated, you know, I used to call, hey, Charlie, you know, he wanted you to call him Charles. My name is Charles Manson. And, you know, and for us to piss him off, we called him Charlie. <laughs> and so I'd go, hey, Charlie, what's going on? You know, and he would go stop dropping the F-bombs. F-you. He'd start going off. And there was this, uh, there was a black dude that was in a cell next to him. Big dude, like 6'6". Six, six, I mean, like 265 all muscle. And I'd be talking to him, and he'd be yelling and cursing. And the, uh, the dude in the cell next to him, he would be standing at his door, and he'd be laughing because he could hear our conversation. And he knew I was just messing with him, just to mess with him. And if I want to get Charlie to shut up, I tell him, I said, okay, Charlie, I said, you know, if, if this is how you want to act, I go, you know, you got this big black dude in the cell next to you. I said, keep running your mouth. I'll open the cell door, let him out, and I'll let him in with you. And I said, you know, and guess what? If I do that, because Charlie is only like five, five two, five four, little bitty dude. Yeah. And I told him, I said, you know, I'll I'll let him into your cell, and uh, he'll make you his girlfriend. <laughs> and that would really piss him off, but he would he would stop talking. <laughs> but um, when he was on his meds, absolutely brilliant. You know, I mean, you could really have some really deep, uh, in depth conversations with him. But when he was off his meds. Total, total, total psycho. Total psycho. You know, I mean, he's he tried to gas me a couple of, I don't know if you know what that means. Uh, he tried to gas me a couple of times. And what that means is that uh, they get opportunity, they'll either throw their urine or their feces on you, a combination of both. So that's what we call gas. You got gassed. All the, you know, a lot of the inmates, you know, would do that. But he tried gassing me a couple of times and, you know, and he didn't get away with it. And, uh, and I actually, he missed me one time and, and the, the dude that was next to him, the black dude, um, he, uh, he had peed in one of his, uh, one of his soda bottles and he goes, Hey, hit him with this. And he had go, what is that? He goes, that's my piss, man. You can get him back. So I went and put some gloves on and I, I opened his little, his cell tray door. I go, I said, Charles, come here for a minute. And he came up to the door and I gasped him back. <laughs> and, uh, and, oh, he was, oh, he was pissed. You just splashed the pee in his face? Yeah, I threw pee on him. Oh, <laughs> uh, he, he cursed me, I mean, for the rest of the day. But I told him, I said, see, you do it to me. You don't like it when it's, <laughs> you don't like it when it's done to you. Oh, he was mad. He cussed me all the rest, the rest of my shift. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. But he's, <laughs> Charlie, he's quite a character. That's quite crazy. a character. Wow. Wow, that's crazy. 
Well, hey, Gary, I got to get off here, man. I got to run over to the gym. But, uh, dude, it was so good talking to you. I appreciate it. We got to do it again sometime. No problem, man. Thank you no so problem. much. Um, what service are you going to this weekend? Nine o'clock? Uh, I'll be at, be at the nine o'clock. You know, they're having a men's breakfast this Saturday. Right, right. Yeah, I'll see you there. Yeah, I won't be able to go because oh. we're, uh, Cindy and I, we're going to a uh, com political campaign event. Okay. Of, uh, of a lady that uh, we're helping with her campaign. Okay. Her name is uh, Sherelle Mendenhall. Okay. Uh, she lives uh, near me in Southern Highlands. She's running for, for U.S. Senate as a Republican. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Yeah, so we're, we're helping her with her campaign. We volunteer for her campaign. Awesome. All right, well, I'll be working the camera at church this weekend. Um, so if you see me on the camera, just come say hi. Will do. Awesome. All right, see you, brother. Have a good one. Bye. Take care. Thank you.